The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. This is God's word. As we dig into this passage, I want you to think about how you react when you are confronted with sin. Ultimately, that's what's happened with David as he pens this confession. After being confronted in his own sin, he's reacting to it. There are many ways we might act when someone confronts sin in our life. How do you typically act? I want you to think about that. Do you get get, uh, defensive? Sometimes that happens. We get defensive. We kind of get um, a little aggressive. Do you get nervous? Maybe you just shut down inside and everything just kind of goes numb as you're hearing somebody uh, reveal to you things in your life that you know are in there that you're not really proud of. Do you play dumb? Maybe you think, oh, I don't have no idea what you're talking about. I'm completely aware of that. Uh, maybe you blame it on circumstances or people in your life that are just making it difficult for you to, to live the way that you need to live. And so you just start talking about, well, if this were different or if this didn't happen, then I, I, it'd be a lot easier for me to obey God. But maybe you dismiss it entirely and just say, I don't even think that I'm sinning. I don't even think that that's something wrong. Well, it brings to light an important thing about what we should know about confession in general, that it's not natural for us. Confessing sin and coming clean about wrongdoing It's really not intuitive for us. Loving God, loving others, uh, and being open about our failure to do that is not naturally our first instinct when when someone confronts us in sin. Uh, Last week, we began a three-week series uh, teaching through Psalm 51, uh, which we're calling the gospel according to David. Psalm 51 is King David's very open, transparent, very honest response to sin being revealed in his life. And in this passage, he shows us the only way for us to move from our sin into grasping the joy of God's salvation and his forgiveness of sin. And Psalm 51 shows us this in three steps, as, as, a, as a sinner understands their sin and moves towards uh, understanding and grasping the gospel. Last week, we covered that first step. As a reminder, here's how we summarized last week, that unless we can appropriately admit our sinfulness, it's impossible to truly grasp the good news of salvation. We have to be honest about what's going on in our life. We have to be honest about our sinfulness and our failure to live as God has called us to. No no man, woman, or child has ever become a Christian without stopping looking at their life and being honest about what they see and admitting their own sinfulness in ways they've fallen short of God's commands. And the world does its best, we mentioned. The world does its best to distract us and give us a whole host, thousands of ways to be distracted, to never have to look at ourselves. And hopefully we made that point clear last week. 
We shared the backstory of David, uh, what led to his confession and this broken response that he gives. He committed adultery. He uh, constructed an intricate web of lies. He even committed murder and went on with his life as if nothing had ever happened. And it was the worst day for David. It really was the worst day for David. And he was confronted. And the first six verses are David's admission and confession of the wrong that he did. Uh, He says this, if you recall in Psalm 51, verse 1 and 3, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so David confesses in these first six verses, I know what I did was wrong, and I confess to you that I am wrong before you and sinful uh, before you. It's a confession of a man who's genuinely sorry and genuinely repentant for the wrong that he did. And it's a good model for us, too, when we seek sin in our life. Verse 7 makes a change, and he actually shifts his language, and he starts now talking about another thing. He tells us that his uh, confession didn't go far enough. And as, as guilty as he is and as sorrowful as he is in admitting that he did wrong, he has more to talk about. There's, not, there's more than one way to sin against God. And today we cover point two, and we can summarize it in this way as we see David going further in his confession. And that is this, to truly grasp the gospel, we must not only be convinced of the bad that we do, but confess how helpless we are to satisfy God with all the good that we do. You see, if we only confess the wrong that we do, we don't go far enough. We must also confess all of our attempts to get rid of sin and the consequence of sin with our own righteousness, with our own change of behavior and good intentions. Here's what we see from the passage, the three things that we need to continue to grasp the joy of God's salvation. We need a deeper understanding of our helplessness before God. We need a longing for change, and ultimately we need the gift of God's mercy. David leads us through this in the rest of this psalm. Let's jump in as we look at this, a deeper understanding of helplessness. David feels helpless. And a good question as you working through this, I mean, doesn't he sound just like a helpless man? The question is, why? Why is he so helpless? Why is he so miserable and so sad? Many Christians will look at David and see his despair and and point to his remorse over sin as the cause of his despair. They say, of course David is having having a really hard day. Of course he is really sorrowful over his sin. Um, He feels bad about what he has done. Uh, He's... Think about times you've betrayed a friend. Think about times that sin has been revealed to you, and you just feel really horrible. You just feel really rotten. Maybe David is obviously just feeling that way. But David shows us that his helplessness doesn't stem primarily from his, or or solely from his actions. He doesn't feel horrible because of the things that he did. He also feels horrible because he realizes his inability to do anything about it passage is filled with petitions from David to God. Basically can be summarized in David saying this, help me. Help me. I can't do anything to fix this. Jump down to Psalm 51, 16, which was read at the end of our passage. He says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. In other words, David is saying, I feel horrible about what I've done. I am broken inside and outside my body. I'm a miserable man. Just tell me how to make it right. Just tell me how to fix it, and I will fix it. Let me fix this. What can I do? David was a man of great wealth, a king over a kingdom. 
all of, of, of the resources were available to him if they've ever been available to anyone. And he is saying, tell me what I need to do to make this better, and I would do it. And David's filled with despair because he realizes there's nothing that he can do. Every person who looks back on their life and realizes their sin and their sinfulness before God becomes aware of this very same thing, our inevitability uh, are, uh, that we are unable to make it right. They feel great guilt and remorse about their actions in the past, and they say, I will, I'm going to live a better life. Have you ever felt that way? you ever felt remorse over sin and truly repentant, and so you... You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start today. Today is the day I'm going to start. I'm going to stop doing those things, and I'm going to start doing these things. And I'm going to live my life better. And you may do that for some time, and you start to feel joy. You start to feel peace. You start to feel uh, some, 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 a new uh, refreshing energy. And, and you feel like you're getting right with God for a while. And then you end up back in those same patterns disappointed again, probably even this time even more disappointed, knowing that you've continued to do the things you've always done. You see, when, when we run out of energy, when we try to bring something to God, a sacrifice to God to make it right, we end up in two ways. We end up either uh, self-inflated with pride or we end up um, dejected with low self-esteem and with shame. We, we end up in self-hatred. When we fail to live the way that we want to live or think that we should live, we say, see, there I go again. I'm, I keep failing. I'm a horrible person. But you know what happens when we actually try to do a good thing and we actually do a good thing? We say, see, I can do this. I'm good enough. I can, I can make it right. I can make it right within myself. There's no joy in, salva in self-salvation. And that's because our helplessness goes much deeper than just our sinful actions, and David knows that. Here, David redefines what's really wrong with each and every one of us. Not just what's really wrong with you and me and with David is not just because we do bad things. It's that we have no way of fixing it. And David redefines what's really wrong with us. David says, if I could do something to fix this, I would, but I can't. And that makes me truly helpless, truly helpless. Uh, nearly everyone defines sin. I want you to think about it. If I were to ask you, what is sin? What does it mean to sin? There's no doubt the first things that come to your mind are going to be actions that we do that we shouldn't do. Sin is breaking the rules. But David shows us that sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior. Sin is also putting ourselves in the place of God as Savior who is meant to rescue us from our sin. See, if you looked at David's confession and thought, David is right to confess. He's committed adultery. He has lied. He's committed murder. He should confess. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered. I've lied, but never about anything truly important. When we do that, when we start saying, well, look at the things that I've done to make it better or that I'm good and I'm not as bad as that person, do you see what you're doing? You're offering a sacrifice to God in hopes that he will extend his favor, love, and forgiveness to you based on your righteousness, based on what you have done or haven't done. David shows us the tendency in all of us to do this, to, to invest in our own self-salvation. In Christianity, we think there's good guys, there's bad guys, and we know who they are. The good guys and good girls, who are they? Oh, they're the ones that, that, that do what the Bible says. They're the ones that are, that are righteous in their deeds and in their thoughts and their actions. 
They're the ones that read their Bible and put before a posture of, of integrity and character. Who are the bad guys and bad girls? Well, they're plain to see, aren't they? They're the ones who rebel against God's commands. And so in Christianity, we have good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are against God's rules. Well, David laments. What causes him to lament is he, as he confesses his own helplessness, as he realizes this, is that heaven will not be filled with people who are good enough to find it because no one can find it on their own. But people who are ultimately the object of God's mercy. It's not about good guys. It's not about bad guys. It's about understanding our helplessness and crying out to God who alone can help us and fix it. This is where David takes us next as he, as he admits his own helplessness and inability to fix it. We see a longing. See, we have a longing to be satisfied. We need this, as David expresses in so many ways. Look carefully at David's words and his sentences as he pens this confession. He really doesn't know what to do with himself. Over and over and over again, you can see it through his writing. You can hear it. He can't silence his thoughts. He can't go to sleep at night. His mind just continues to race. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever laid awake at night? Just you could not turn off your brain. David is so frustrated, helpless, agitated with his thoughts. He cannot find peace. He cannot sleep. He has a deep unrest. He uses all these word pictures to communicate this this deep longing that he has to be satisfied. Do you see a few of those? He says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was this herb that was used to, to soothe lepers. The, 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 uh, the boils and, and the scabs and open sores of, on the skin of lepers, this herb was used to make them feel better. And even more than that, it was used to make them clean. Because a leper, as we know from Scripture, people used to see outward, outward disease as a result of an inward sin. And so because they were outwardly unclean, they were unclean to be among the people of God. And so the people who were lepers, they wanted to cleanse themselves with this herb so that they can rejoin the worship of God and be among God's people. And David feels like that. He feels like a, like a leper. And he says, purge me with hyssop. David feels on the, uh, he feels on the outside of God's grace. And he just wants back in. And he says, just do something to get me back in. Back into your grace. He says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. The stain that makes him feel of sin makes him feel so dirty. The stain that makes him feel so dirty that not even the strongest soap in the world can, can clean him. Not even that kind, you know, at, at Whole Foods. He can't even find anything strong enough and herbal enough to clean the stain that he feels on his life. Wash me. Wash me, please, and I will be clean. He says, let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Have you ever felt so troubled, so spiritually bereaved, that it made you feel physically wounded? I have. That's what David is saying. He, has, he feels so helpless that he is physically sick. That's happening every bit of this psalm. I want you to see it. It's pervasive throughout. Is David's cry and his pleading for God to help him. Can you hear it? What can I do? Who can help me? Who can take away the wound in my heart? 
Who can refresh my spirit? Can somebody fix it? When will this pain be removed? Will I ever find joy again? And David didn't fully understand it, but his cries that he prayed and that he penned in Psalm 51 were a cry for a redeemer, a cry for a rescuer, a cry for not a thing to happen in his life, but a cry for a person to come and help him. David's not just asking for forgiveness. Do you see that? He's not just saying, I'm sorry, the sin I committed was wrong. Please forgive me. David's crying for a rescuer. He's crying for redemption. He's crying for deliverance and salvation. And Jesus, Jesus is the mercy for which David cries. Jesus is the unfailing love that is hope. Jesus is the compassion for which he cries. This is the whole drama of Psalm 51. Can't you, can't you feel it? Can't you see it in there? As David prays for mercy, unfailing love, and great compassion, powerful enough to wash away any transgression and create purity of heart, he wasn't praying for a thing. He was praying for a Savior. He's praying for Jesus, the kind of Savior capable not only of just forgiveness, but for new birth, the kind of Savior who can come and actually make him completely, utterly, and thoroughly new. And this is what we are doing every time we find ourselves in great need. Every time you and I acknowledge our sin before God and confess our inability to save ourselves, you are meant to long for Jesus too. Every time we come to the understanding that we have sinned against God and we're incapable of fixing it ourselves, we are meant to think of Jesus as well. We're not just crying out for God to do something magical or spiritual in nature. We're crying out for God to rescue us. We're meant to long for Jesus. It's not only a prayer of confession, as we've mentioned. It's a cry for deep change, not just a change in behavior. David doesn't just say, help me to be better than I am. He says, make me new. Give me a new heart. Give me a new life. He wants to be changed in his innermost being. He realizes that it's not just outward change that's going to help him be new. He says, create in me a new heart. You, you, desire, you desire something from the inside that I'm incapable of giving you. When confronted with sin, people who fail to understand their true helpless state before God give counsel and encouragement in this way. They say, you just follow your heart. Just look deep inside yourself and follow, find something in there that can help you come out of this desperation. But people who have truly come to a helpless need and understand their incapability of fixing it say, I need a new heart. You see, it's different from follow your heart to David's cry, which has created me a new heart. Because the one I have is defective, it is broken, it is utterly diseased and incapable of doing anything good to get me out of this. David cries, he cries out for the very thing that every single one of us need. A new heart. Not just new behaviors, not just new actions or thoughts, but a very new creation in ourselves. How do we get it? How do we get that? We see that David cries for it, but how do we get it? A new heart is the very epicenter of God's work of grace through Jesus Christ. It is the very business that God is in, is to make people new, to give them a new heart, to change them in the innermost, the very things that David cries out for. Well, it's the very epicenter of God's work of grace through Jesus. 
when J John the Baptist, the forerunner, and the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus, to preach repentance of sin, for the kingdom of God was, was, was near. They would come to him as he was baptizing people with water. They came to him and said, are you the Messiah? Virtually what they were asking are, are you the one David prayed for? Are you the one that would come and rescue us and wash us clean and give us a new heart and mend our broken bones and change us from the, in the innermost? And you know what John said? He, did, he didn't even say no, which is interesting. He says, I come and baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize with the Spirit. What is he saying, really? John the Baptist says this. He says, it's funny you ask. I can clean you on the outside, but I can't clean you on the inside. One's coming who can do that. He's cleaning people with water. And he's saying, I can clean you with water on the outside, but I can't clean you on the inside. John was proclaiming the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise from Ezekiel chapter 36, where God, speaking through Ezekiel, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus does what legalism and good behavior and self-salvation can never do. He gives us a new heart and a new spirit, and he gives us life of the innermost being. And without this transformation, this inner transformation, we will never truly grasp the joy of God's salvation. We will never truly know the gospel without that happening. All we can do is just to clean up ourselves on the outside, like soap does for dirty hands. And we spend so much of our life trying to clean a white t-shirt with muddy hands. And all we do is just keep getting it dirty over and over again. And here is how he does it. Here is how God makes us clean. Take me just a few minutes to do this and then we're done. It'll be well worth your time, I promise. We need our final thing that David shows to us. Not only just a helplessness and a longing for, for, for peace, but we need a gift of God's mercy. A gift of mercy. This is where David goes. A clue is found in verse 9 and 11 if you want to glance there. A desperate prayer from David. David says in verse 9, hide your face from my sins. And then in verse 11 he says, cast me not away from your presence. What is he asking here really? The word presence and the word face are the exact same word. David is saying this virtually. He is asking God to do this. Look away from my sin, but don't look away from me. David is asking the impossible. He is asking God to show mercy. He is asking God, give me what I don't deserve. Now listen, this, we have this understanding of, of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. Put yourself in David's shoes. All that David has come to know, all the Old Testament you have come to know, and God has communicated and revealed himself in a very clear way. If you sin, you're cut off from my people. If you disobey me, then my wrath will be poured out on you. If you do not follow in my statutes, 
then you will be punished for your sin. And David says, could you not do that just this one time? Just this one time, don't do that. It is like asking us to jump up from the ground with our feet never leaving the floor. Try to do it. Let's do that, actually. Just, no, I'm just kidding. And don't be tricky. Don't be like, don't try to do like different feet at different times. Jump up from the ground, but have your feet never leave the floor. That's what David's asking God to do. Just this once, don't, don't do what you said you're always going to do. David is saying, don't look at my sin, but continue to keep your eyes on me. David is asking, ignore my sin, but don't ignore me. Reject my sin, but don't reject me. Forsake my sin, but don't forsake me. It's an impossible scenario. It's an impossible scenario to ask a holy God, a perfect God, to do the absurd, to look away from from unrighteousness. And David is pleading, but just this once. Do it. And so God does. How? God sends Jesus. And he sends Jesus, and he places all of our sin on Jesus. And Jesus hangs on the cross. What is happening on that cross? Why does he do that? Was Jesus a good man who did a good deed for our benefit? So we look at him and we say, look at all he did for us. We need to be that sacrificial and that good and that kind. That's not why he hangs on the cross. Here is why he hangs on the cross. While Jesus hangs on the cross and bears our sin, God looks away from his only son that he loves with his whole life so that he would never have to look away from you or me. This is what happens on the cross. God ignores the cries of his son so he would never ignore us. He rejects his son so that he would never reject us. And he forsakes his son so that we would have the promise that God would never forsake us. David says this one time, could you not look at my sin, but somehow manage to continue to look at me? This is what Jesus secures. In doing this, it's possible now that God would cast away our sin and remember it no more, and we would be in his presence forever. Do you know what's happening when Jesus is dying on the cross? God is destroying his son without destroying us. And we ask God to do that, but we don't understand what it costs for that to happen. We say God's a forgiving God. God is a merciful God. God will look at me and say, okay, I love you. Don't do that again. God can't do that. He finds a way. When we blow it, when we find ourselves in sin, we only have one argument to make before God, only one plea, only one request. And it's not an argument that flows from the difficulty of our environment, meaning we can't go to God and say, please don't look at my sin, but continue to have favor on me because it's been a hard week. Be sympathetic to me because I'm, I'm trying the best that I can. 
It's not an argument uh, that flows from difficult people who are making it hard for us to live faithful lives. It's not an argument from culture that that says, look at how confusing things are right now. How, How can I be a Christian? It's not an argument of our good intentions that we are trying to make by saying, God, just be patient with me. I'm trying. We have one argument and we have one plea and we have one request and it is this. God, have mercy on me. Give me what I don't deserve. Do the impossible. And don't treat me according to the way I deserve. We have no other defense. We have no other hope but the mercy of God. And so we appeal to the one thing that can secure God's favor for us, the fact that God turned his face against Jesus while he hung on the cross bearing our sin and our shame in our place so that we can be assured he would never turn his face from us. Isn't that great? This is our hope. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus in our place. And so David says, you don't have a, you don't have a sacrifice. Like There's nothing you can bring to God, because if you could bring it, then you would find a way. David says, everything's at my disposal, everything, I, everything, I'm wealthy, I'm resourceful, and I have a kingdom at my disposal. If there was something I could bring, I would. But then David kind of makes a concession for those who like to do things. In the last verse, he says, so he says, you have no sacrifice that will please God, but here's the sacrifice God desires. And so it's, it's almost like he makes a concession. So here is, here's what you can be. If you're kind of the doer kind of person, and you're like, but I need to do something, David gives he gives you some encouragement. Here's what he says. Do you want to do something for God? Here's what you can bring. Empty hands. A humble heart. And a broken spirit. I don't know if that's what you're looking for. But that's all we can bring. The only thing we need to do for our salvation is to have need, is to recognize our helplessness, to cry out for mercy. And God is eager to give it. And when we do that, we are assured forever that because of Jesus, God's countenance before us is always happiness. His affection for us is always delight. And his pursuit for us is always joyful. We become the objects of his love. We become the recipient of his affection. He's able to do the impossible. A holy God is able to have intimate relationship with sinful people because our sin and punishment for our sin was satisfied in Jesus on the cross. And in that time, at that time, David's prayer we see comes true. Don't, don't look at my sin but look at me forever. And so God does that. The greatest gift we will ever be given. Don't you realize it? The greatest gift we could ever receive is actually to get what we don't deserve. What we don't deserve. So Jesus got what we deserve so that we could get what he deserves, which is the favor of a God who loves us. Jesus' whole life and ministry marched towards the dramatic moment on the cross where he cries out on the cross, my father, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? We know the answer to that question now so that we could be with him forever. Why have you turned your face against me so that we would never, ever see the back of God's head ever again? We would never see God walking away from us. We would never see him betraying or forsaking us. We would never see God look away from us in disapproval. Do you know what that is? The word face used in this passage is always used in the plural. Well, that's weird, isn't it? When David says, turn your, don't turn your face from me, but turn your face from my sin. Plural. Like he's saying, don't turn all of the faces that you have. So he's talking not just about the physical face. He's talking about all of your emotion, all of your affection, all of who you are, with all of the power within you, and all of your intentionality. Don't look at my sin. Everything that is in you, God, ignore my sin. But likewise, he is saying, everything that is in you, everything you are capable of feeling, feel it with an affection for me. And that's exactly what we get. It's exactly what we get so that we could be with him forever. This is the good news. Not our righteousness, but his.